Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Foxes are one of many wild animals that share cities and other places with human beings. And in April, one of them made headlines after biting at least nine people around the U.S. Capitol. When this story crossed my Twitter feed, I became incredibly invested in whether everybody who got bitten by this fox had gotten their rabies shots afterward. News articles were not telling me the answer to this information. (laughs) Some of them were talking about a specific reporter or a specific congressperson, but I was like, no, everybody, everybody needs to get the rabies shots because foxes can carry rabies rabies is virtually always fatal once people develop symptoms, once anyone develops symptoms. But today's rabies prophylaxis is almost 100% effective at preventing that from happening. It is, I think, the most effective vaccine that we have in existence. So then when news broke that, yes, this fox did have rabies, it was like just a big flashing, screaming sign in my brain, going, (laughs) rabies shots, rabies shots, rabies shots. Please tell me everyone got their rabies shots. Of course, then that made me want to do a podcast on rabies and the vaccine that prevents it. Something that somehow I thought we already had stuff on. We don't. Or if we do, I failed to find it. The vast majority of our listeners live in places where rabies deaths in humans are extremely rare. 
Some parts of the world are rabies-free, and here in the United States, there were only five human deaths from rabies in 2021. That was the highest number of annual rabies deaths in the United States in a decade. There are also places, though, where rabies is still endemic, and globally, about 56,000 people die from it every year. That is a not a like that's a small number compared to something like the current pandemic. But they're 56,000 totally preventable deaths. Like, we have what we need to prevent this. So I wanted to talk about that. Heads up, though, there's a lot of animal experimentation in this episode. And deaths, obviously. Rabies is caused by rabies lysivirus, which probably originated in old-world bats. This virus has existed on every continent except Antarctica and Australia for millennia. And although Australia is rabies-free, it's home to a closely related virus called bat lysivirus. But in spite of the virus's connection to bats, humanity's connection to rabies has mainly been through dogs. That connection shows up in the first written reference we have of rabies. That's in the Eshnunna Code from roughly 2000 BCE. Eshnunna was a city in what's now Iraq, and some of its laws have survived on a pair of broken tablets that were found at an archaeological site near Baghdad. Here's one of the laws, quote, If a dog is mad and the authorities have brought the fact to the knowledge of its owner, if he does not keep it in and it bites a man and causes his death, then the owner shall pay two-thirds of a mina of silver. If it bites a slave and causes his death, he shall pay 15 shekels of silver. The first written reference to rabies in China is from the Zuo tradition, sometimes called the Zuo Commentary. This is a commentary on the spring and autumn annals, which chronicles a period of Chinese history stretching from 722 to 481 BC. One passage in the Tsuo tradition describes people of the capital city of Sung chasing a rabid dog. The dog ran into the home of a minister named Hua Chen, and the people chased after it. Hua Chen was afraid and fled the city. In about the 4th century BCE, Aristotle wrote this in his History of Animals, quote, Dogs suffer from three diseases, rabies, quincy, and sore feet. Rabies drives the animal mad, and any animal whatever, excepting man, will take the disease if bitten by a dog so afflicted. The disease is fatal to the dog itself and to any animal it may bite, man excepted. So this translation makes it sound like Aristotle was saying that humans don't get rabies, but it's also been interpreted as meaning that people don't always develop rabies when bitten by a rabid dog, and that is true, or that people don't always die from the disease if they contract it, which is almost never true. People have known that rabies was essentially always fatal for thousands of years, though. Roman court physician Scribonius Largest described rabies as incurable in the first century CE. In addition to being lethal, rabies progresses in a way that can be really terrifying. The exact symptoms can vary, but there are two broad categories, both of which end in coma and death. Paralytic rabies involves lethargy, weakness, and paralysis. And furious rabies involves agitation, aggression, and hyperactivity. The word rabies reflects this latter type. It comes from the Latin for to rage, which may have roots in a Sanskrit word meaning to do violence. 
lithovirus has a similar root. It comes from a Greek word meaning frenzy or madness, which was used to describe rabies as well as to describe irrational rage. Rabies shows up a lot in popular culture, and that goes back thousands of years as well, including the use of rabies or rabid dogs as a metaphor for being mad or uncontrollable. For example, in the Iliad, which was written in about the 8th century BCE, Homer describes Hector as a rabid dog. Rabies can also cause paralysis and spasms in the throat that make it impossible to swallow water. That's why it's also known as hydrophobia. In the 2nd century CE, Roman philosopher Celsus used the word hydrophobia in his description of the disease. Celsus also recognized that something was present in saliva that transmitted this illness, and he recommended a range of techniques to draw this substance out of wounds. Like the connection between rabies and aggressive rage, the connection between rabies and hydrophobia made its way into literature centuries ago. For example, in about the year 500, Caelius Aurelianus suggested that Homer's description of Tantalus in the Odyssey might have been inspired by rabies, since Tantalus is tormented by water that he cannot drink. It's also possible that rabies influenced ancient Greek depictions of Cerberus, the multi-headed dog that guarded the underworld, and that those depictions of a mad beast with poison frothing from its jaws circled back to influence people's perceptions of rabies. So through these and other written references, we know that rabies had spread from wherever it originated all through India, China, the Middle East, Greece, Rome, and Egypt by about 1,500 years ago. But we don't really know how widespread the disease was in any of these places or how many deaths it caused among humans and other animals. That starts to change in the medieval period when people started documenting large outbreaks of the disease within specific animals. These accounts primarily focused on outbreaks among dogs and other canids, including wolves and foxes. For example, an outbreak of wolf rabies struck Franconia in 1271. A massive outbreak among red foxes spread over parts of Europe between 1571 and 1581, leading people to try to stop the disease by culling them. Sometimes these outbreaks could spread to other animals, including infecting people when they were bitten. At this point, we haven't mentioned rabies in the Americas. And that's because while rabies existed in the Americas through all this, rabid dogs probably did not. Based on genetic studies of the virus itself, before European colonization, rabies in the Americas primarily infected bats and skunks. There's some evidence that indigenous peoples in ancient Central and South America regarded both bat bites and snake bites as potentially dangerous and treated bat bites with washing and cauterization with hot coals to try to prevent disease. Spanish colonists were reported being bitten by bats in the early 1500s, and in 1514, Fernandez de Oviedo wrote about several soldiers dying after being bitten by vampire bats. Dog rabies is one of many diseases that Europeans introduced to the Americas. And after that introduction, it spread to other animals and became far more likely to infect people. But that process did not happen nearly as quickly with rabies as it did with diseases like smallpox. Rabies typically has an incubation period of roughly three to eight weeks, although it can occasionally be much longer. 
Once symptoms appear, rabies is virtually always fatal within about 10 days. When Europeans first started sailing to the Americas, the voyage often took more than two months, so any dogs or other animals that had been infected before setting sail usually developed symptoms and died or were killed while still at sea. So that meant introducing dog rabies to the Americas required a voyage that was short enough for infected dogs to survive it, also required a large enough population of dogs and other mammals within a colony for the disease to keep circulating once it had been introduced. The first recorded outbreak of dog rabies in the Americas was reported in Mexico City in 1709. And by the end of the 18th century, dog rabies was widespread in most of the places in the Americas that Europeans had colonized. This, in turn, spread the disease to the continent's native animals, with some of those exposures leading to new strains of the virus that were adapted to specific species. We'll talk about how a vaccine was developed to prevent rabies after a sponsor break. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands in over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, 
retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. By the 18th and 19th centuries, outbreaks of rabies were spread across a lot of the world in domesticated dogs and in wild animals. In North America, rabies became so widespread in skunks that they were nicknamed phobie cats, like hydrophobie. And phobie tents were advertised as a way for cowboys to avoid being bitten by them in their sleep. In 1803, an outbreak among wild foxes in France spread to dogs, pigs, and people. Bites from rabid wolves tended to be particularly lethal, in part because attacking wolves often bit people's faces or necks, meaning the virus was way closer to their brain, while rabid dogs usually bit people's hands or arms. There was no cure for rabies and no way to tell whether a person would develop it after being bitten. And estimates of how many people developed rabies after a bite stretch all the way from 5% to 50%. Some of this is just because of imprecise record-keeping, but it's also connected to how people responded to the disease. In many places, there was a widespread assumption that any animal that bit had rabies, and during outbreaks, people tended to hunt down and kill animals that they thought might be spreading disease. So a dog that bit someone in the midst of all of this might be rabid, or it might just be scared and cornered and trying to defend itself. Around the world, people tried various herbs and medical preparations to prevent or cure rabies. And because it was so lethal, many of these also relied on the idea of divine intervention. For example, Hubertus, also called St. Hubert, is the patron saint of hunting. And one of his reported miracles involved curing somebody who had been bitten by a rabid dog. So in much of Europe, people used a piece of iron called St. Hubert's Key to cauterize bite wounds. As part of this treatment, a priest would also make a shallow cut over a person's forehead, place a black bandage over that, and the person wore that bandage for nine days. Some people even carried one of these keys around with them for protection. Long before the development of the germ theory of disease, people recognized that when someone was bitten by a rabid animal, something in the animal's saliva was going into the wound and potentially causing rabies. So some of the other treatments for bites involved washing the wound, applying caustic chemicals to it, or cauterizing it, whether it was with a St. Hubertus's key or with some other implement. If these treatments were done immediately after a person was bitten, they may have helped reduce the chance of developing rabies by washing away the animal's infected saliva. Thoroughly washing the wound is still step one in rabies prevention today, 
But none of this was enough to totally prevent the chance of developing the fatal disease. Beeble also tried to prevent rabies by reducing the numbers of animals that could carry it and transmit it to humans and to other animals. For example, in 1867, the UK passed the Metropolitan Streets Act. Among other things, this act empowered police to collect and muzzle stray dogs, or dogs that were determined to be dangerous. This reportedly led to a drop in human cases of rabies in British cities. Also in the 18th and 19th centuries, researchers were learning about rabies and working on ways to prevent its spread. During the earlier part of this time, researchers didn't yet know what a virus was, but trying to talk around that got really clunky, so we are still going to call it a virus in our discussion today. Yeah, it was a lot of incredibly stilted sentences before I was like, we're just calling it a virus, <laughs> regardless of whether that individual researcher knew what a virus was. So in 1769, Italian anatomist and pathologist John Morgagni observed that rabies traveled via the nerves rather than traveling through the bloodstream. He made this connection because some patients reported a feeling of pins and needles or other neurological disturbances around the site of their original bite wound. Morgani was correct. Once it enters the body, the rabies virus moves along the nerves until it gets to the brain and the rest of the central nervous system. After it gets to the brain, the rabies virus makes its way to the salivary glands, where it can cause excessive salivation. And although 18th century researchers didn't quite have that part figured out, they did know that the disease was spread through saliva. In 1793, Scottish surgeon John Hunter speculated that it would be possible to use a lancet to intentionally introduce an infected animal's saliva into another animal, but it's not clear whether he tried this in practice. We also don't know whether German naturalist George Gottfried Zinke was familiar with Hunter's work, but in 1804, he brushed saliva from a rabid dog onto a cut he had made in the leg of a healthy dog. This previously healthy dog contracted rabies. He did the same thing with other healthy mammals, demonstrating that it was possible for the bite of an infected dog to infect animals of other species. In 1821, French neurophysiologist Francois Magendie reported that he had infected a previously healthy dog with saliva from a person who had contracted rabies. Victor Gaultier was a professor at the National Veterinary School in Lyon, France, and he started experimenting with rabies in 1879. He found that it was possible to transmit rabies from a dog to a rabbit and then from that rabbit to another rabbit. Rabbits were smaller and easier to keep than dogs, and they were less dangerous research subjects than rabid dogs were. Gaultier also found that the rabbits had a shorter incubation period of about 18 days rather than a month or more that you might see in a dog. Gaultier did various experiments with infected animals' saliva, attempting to see whether he could find some way of using this infectious material to prevent rabies. In 1881, he injected rabies virus into the jugular veins of sheep, and they didn't develop rabies. And then when he exposed one of them to saliva from a rabid dog later on, it seemed like it was immune to the disease. French chemist and microbiologist Louis Pasteur started working on rabies at about this same time, and he was inspired by Gaultier's success. 
Pasteur already had an extensive background in this kind of work. In the 1850s, he had studied yeast and alcohol fermentation, as well as the ability for microorganisms to contaminate fermenting beverages. This had contributed to both the germ theory of disease and the development of pasteurization. In the 1860s, he had identified a microorganism that was devastating the French silk industry. And in the 1870s, he studied animal diseases like anthrax and chicken cholera, including developing an anthrax vaccine. While Pasteur had lots of experience in this kind of research, he had pretty much no experience in medicine or the clinical treatment of patients. So he relied on other people for this knowledge, including French physician and bacteriologist Émile Roux. A whole team of other scientists and doctors were involved in this work as well, including Charles Chamberlain, Émile Duclos, Louis Tullier, and Joseph Granchet. This was definitely not a solo effort, and Pasteur was not always excited about crediting other people for their involvement in it, There are even some historians who have accused him of stealing other people's ideas. Much of Pasteur's previous work had involved culturing bacteria and working from those cultures, and he started out trying to do the same thing with rabies. Since rabies is caused by a virus rather than a bacterium, Pasteur's efforts to replicate his earlier process failed. He started working directly with the saliva of infected animals and then moved on to working with central nervous system matter. He found that if he exposed a healthy rabbit to rabies, it developed rabies. Then if he used that rabbit's central nervous system matter to expose another rabbit, that second rabbit also developed rabies, and the second rabbit's infection seemed to be more virulent than the first. If he did this a third time, the third rabbit's infection was also more virulent than the second's had been, He continued this serial passage of the virus from rabbit to rabbit until he had a strain of it that he described as fixed. It was consistent in how virulent it was, and it had an incubation period that was set at six or seven days. From there, Pasteur air-dried the spinal cords of rabbits that had died of that highly virulent fixed strain. The longer they dried, the weaker the virus became. That's a process called attenuation. When he exposed other animals to a small amount of this attenuated virus, they seemed to develop a resistance to rabies rather than becoming ill. From there, Pasteur started to wonder whether it was possible to make an animal more resistant to rabies after it had already been bitten, preventing it from developing the disease. Having successfully tested out this idea in dogs, he tried it on two people, but he didn't publish on either of these attempts, so they were not known about until much later. One of these was a man who had been bitten by a dog, and while this man survived, it's also likely that he had not actually been exposed to rabies. The other was an 11-year-old girl who had been bitten in the face by a puppy, and she had already started developing rabies symptoms. She died the day after she was given the treatment. On July 4, 1885, 9-year-old Joseph Meister was repeatedly bitten by a dog in Alsace. The dog was believed to be rabid, and two days later, the child was brought to Pester for help. Emile Roux had been heavily involved in Pester's research up to this point, and he refused to be involved in the boy's treatment because of ethical concerns. 
Pasteur expressed some reluctance as well, but Joseph Granchet and Alfred Volpien of the Académie de Médecins encouraged him to try, with Granchet administering the treatment since Pasteur was not a doctor. Joseph was given a series of inoculations over the span of 10 days, starting with a very weak preparation and working up through ones that were less and less attenuated. Three months later, he had no sign of rabies. Another attempt was started with another patient shortly after Joseph Meister was declared to be in the clear. That was Jean-Baptiste Jupil, a 14-year-old shepherd who had been mauled while saving a group of younger boys from a dog. Pasteur reported his results to the French Academy of Science on October 26, 1885, while Jupil's treatment was still ongoing. Told about his success with Joseph Meister and the fact that he had successfully inoculated 50 dogs against rabies before trying this process on a human. We're going to talk more about what happened with all of this after we pause for a quick sponsor break. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. As word of Pasteur's success at preventing rabies started to spread, people started flocking to him for treatment. By the start of 1886, he had treated at least 350 people. They came from all over Europe and from the United States. In early December of 1885, a dog bit at least seven other dogs and six children in Newark, New Jersey. Word of Pasteur's work had made it to the U.S., and a local doctor published an appeal for funds to send the boys to Paris for treatment. Four of the boys were sent to Paris by steamer. The other two were determined to not have sufficient injuries to need treatment. American news coverage of these boys' trip to Paris and then their return to the United States turned rabies vaccine into just a media sensation. And three of the boys were displayed at the Globe Museum in the Bowery in New York after they all got home. Not everyone agreed with what Pasteur and his team were doing. Anti-vivisectionists objected to the use of animals in this research, and as we've said, not everyone who is bitten by a rabid animal contracts rabies, and not every animal who bites someone is rabid. Since there was still not a test for rabies, determining whether an animal had it usually involved just waiting to see if it died. But that wasn't really possible if it had already been killed or if it just couldn't be found. You could also expose a healthy animal to the brain or saliva of an animal who had bitten someone, but by the time the healthy animal showed any symptoms, it was just likely to be too late for the human patient. So critics made the point that Pasteur was potentially exposing people to rabies for no reason, and that his inoculation might cause somebody who had been bitten by a non-rabid dog to then develop rabies because of their treatment. Critics also noted that some of Pasteur's patients did die. By November of 1886, 1,700 patients had received rabies injections and 10 of them had died. The uncertainty combined with the deaths to spark a huge amount of debate within the medical community about whether what Pasteur was doing was ethical or even medically necessary. The Académie de Médecins held a meeting on the subject on January 11, 1887. Although Pasteur's critics were vocal, his supporters, led by Dr. Joseph Granchet, successfully defended his work. The Institut Pasteur was established on June 4, 1887, and it opened on November 14th of that year. It focused on disease research and on providing rabies vaccine. By 1898, more than 20,000 people had been treated at the Pasteur Institute after a possible rabies exposure, and only 96 of them had died, or less than half of a percent of patients. To be clear, there was a lot about this early version of the vaccine that was inherently unsafe. It was basically made from animal brain or spinal cord tissue. There could for sure be complications. But this was still a dramatic improvement over 
an untreatable fatal disease. Discoveries about the rabies virus continued after this point. In 1903, Italian pathologist Aldecchi Negri discovered round and oval regions in the brains of animals that had died of rabies, which he called Negri bodies. At the time, he thought they were some kind of parasite, but they actually arise as part of the reproductive cycle of the virus. This paved the way for the first rabies tests. While there are newer methods for detecting rabies in brain matter today, Negri bodies are still sometimes used when those methods are not available. The most reliable tests do still involve examining an animal's brain, which is why living animals have to be euthanized to be tested for rabies. Refinements in the vaccine were also in the works. Pasteur's methods didn't always produce a consistently potent vaccine, and if it was too potent, it could cause somebody to contract rabies. In the early 20th century, researchers started using phenol to kill the virus rather than attenuating it through air drying. Viruses were cultured in tissues in 1936, which led to tissue-cultured vaccines, rather than using brain matter to make them. Today's rabies vaccines are mostly cultured in human cells or in chick embryos or some other cellular matter. Although some of Pasteur's colleagues speculated about whether it would be possible to mass vaccinate dogs or other animals and lower the spread of rabies to people, serious efforts to do that didn't start until decades later. But efforts like that have led to the successful eradication of rabies in some parts of the world. There are too many rabies-free countries today for us to try to name them all, but they include many islands, including many Caribbean islands, the Canary Islands, the Falkland Islands, the Galapagos Islands, the UK, Iceland, Japan, and New Zealand. Several nations in continental Europe are also considered rabies-free, including much of Western Europe. We should note, though, that rabies-free often means rabies-free in terrestrial animals. There can still be rabies or other lysoviruses in bats specifically. So even if you are somewhere that is considered rabies-free, being bitten by a bat still warrants medical attention. Just in general, don't touch bats with your bare hands. You don't need to be afraid of bats. They're generally pretty shy, and they're not going to mess with you if you don't mess with them. But, like, don't go grab one with your hand. Which is so hard because they're so cute. (laughs) Not for me, because I see one, like, if I see a bat somewhere that I don't expect to see a bat, I'm like, that bat is definitely a problem. I am not going anywhere near it. (laughs) I will tell a bat story in our behind the scenes. Okay. Um, As we said at the top of the show, rabies is still endemic in some parts of the world, including parts of Asia and Africa. About 40% of human rabies deaths occur each year in India, with the vast majority of those exposures coming from dogs. And some serious outbreaks among wild animals started long after the rabies vaccine was developed. For example, rabies was identified in North American raccoons in 1936, and there is an ongoing epidemic of rabies among raccoons all along the East Coast. There are efforts to get these and other outbreaks in wild animals under control using things like oral rabies vaccine baits. Yeah, there are also mass vaccination campaigns, a lot of work on this. A lot of the deaths that occur around the world happen in children who, like, just wanted to pet a dog and got bitten. So it is very sad. 
It's also possible for one animal to spark a huge exposure scenario, even in places where rabies is relatively well-controlled. For example, on October 5th, 1994, a family bought a kitten from a pet store in New Hampshire, and then about three weeks later, this kitten developed seizures and died. After its death, it was determined to have had rabies. This kitten had been examined by a veterinarian and had a certificate of health before it was sold, but the pet store didn't have clear records of when animals had arrived there or been sold. So in the end, 665 people received post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP, for rabies. These were people who had come into contact with that kitten or who had bought other animals that had probably had contact with the kitten at the store or people who had contact with those animals, people who worked at the store, people who visited the store and handled the animals really just on and on. The probable initial source for this whole thing was a raccoon that may have come into contact with three feral kittens that were then captured and sold at the store. As a side note, you may have heard that rabies prophylaxis is a horrifying series of incredibly painful shots directly into the stomach with a gigantic and terrifying needle. It is not. Older versions of rabies pep did involve a long series of 14 to 21 shots, usually given in the abdomen. But that's just because the abdomen offered a lot more surface area to work with, not because the injections went into the stomach through a huge needle. Still, I mean, to be clear, that is a lot of shots into a tender area, and the vaccine that was in use at the time could have a range of unpleasant side effects. Yeah, I I would not want to get 14 to 21 shots all around my abdominal oh, tissue. Oh, no, thank you. Like, it, it, it was not a gigantically long needle going into people's actual stomachs. It's also not what is in use today. The current recommendation is that a person gets one dose of human rabies immune globulin and one dose of rabies vaccine shortly after the bite. The immune globulin is typically injected near the bite location, and then the vaccine typically goes into the deltoid region of the arm where lots of other vaccines go. Then the person gets three more doses of vaccine that are spread out in the days that follow, again, as injections into the shoulder area also using a vaccine that is, like, cultured in tissues and a lot safer than what was being used in the past. This process can be a little bit different for children or if a person is immunocompromised or if a person has been previously vaccinated for rabies. That's something that's typically only done based on a person's risk for being exposed to rabies. As another side note, we have been really, really focused on bites here because the overwhelming majority of rabies exposures come from bites or possibly scratches. There are some other ways to contract the disease, but they're extraordinarily rare, like through the eyes or mucous membranes if someone is exposed to aerosolized rabies virus in some way, or because rabies can closely resemble various types of encephalitis it is sometimes missed as a diagnosis when doctors don't know that the person was bitten by an animal. This has led to an extremely small number of rabies transmissions through organ transplants. Although the risk of this is extremely remote, after the first report of it happening, many organ procurement organizations started including screening questions to try to rule out this possibility. Circling back around to rabies and pop culture, this was actually a plot line on the TV show Scrubs. Yeah, it sounds 
truly horrifying, but also like the disease process that rabies causes, like in the umbrella of encephalitis. And if a doctor doesn't know that a person was bitten by an animal or picked up a bat or whatever, like it's most doctors have never seen a case of rabies in their career. And it's not the thing that first comes to mind. In 2004, 15-year-old Gina Gizzi and her medical team made headlines after she became the first person known to survive rabies after starting to develop symptoms. She had picked up and been bitten by a bat, and although her wound was cleaned with hydrogen peroxide, she wasn't taken in for further treatment. She started developing symptoms about a month later, and then about six days into her illness, reported having been bitten by the bat. Doctors placed Gizzi in a medically-induced coma and gave her antiviral drugs and other treatments. These treatments continued until tests suggested that her body was fighting off the virus, and at that point, she was brought out of the coma. She survived this experience, and news outlets have continued to report on her life into the year 2021. At the time, this seemed like a hopeful sign that what came to be known as the Milwaukee Protocol would make it possible to cure people after they started showing symptoms of rabies. But efforts to replicate that success have been largely unsuccessful. One paper in the Journal of the Brazilian Society of Tropical Medicine traced 38 published uses of the Milwaukee Protocol, including one use of a similar protocol called the Recife Protocol, Only 11 of those patients survived, with all but five of them having moderate to severe complications afterward. This is certainly an improvement over a disease with an essentially 100% fatality rate. But these numbers may be deceptively optimistic. Three of the people who were described as having survived did make it through the most critical part of the illness, but they still died. At least one of the patients may not have actually had rabies, and there's been no coordinated method for tracking when this protocol has or hasn't been attempted. It's likely that anyone who tried it and succeeded would publish their results, but it's also possible that people who tried it and failed have not. Yeah, there are some papers, like, Uh, opinion commentary written by teams of doctors that are like, this does not work and we need to stop focusing our effort on it. And others that are a little bit more like, this may need some other refining before it could work. Aside from all that, though, all the patients described in these publications spent at least a month in the hospital with extensive care throughout their stay. So it's extremely unlikely that this protocol could really be put into use in the places where human deaths from rabies are the most prevalent. These places tend to be rural and poor without a lot of healthcare infrastructure. Places where people don't have access to rabies prophylaxis are likely to also be places where people don't have access to a hospital that could support this kind of treatment. Also, it's extremely clear at this point that coordinated programs of public education and dog vaccinations and sometimes vaccinations in particular wild animals can lower the number of human rabies deaths enormously. And places that don't have the resources to support those kinds of programs and initiatives are really likely not to have the resources to support hundreds or thousands of people with long-term hospital stays and medically-induced comas, it's like, even if this worked, it would really be working for the wealthiest countries in the world and not the places where treatment is most needed. 
So all of that said, the global cost of rabies is roughly $8.6 billion per year, and more than 15 million people per year receive rabies PEP. This protocol can be really expensive. In the United States, it can cost between $1,200 and $6,500. Yeah, that's like one estimate that I can saw, that I saw. I saw some that were even higher than that. September 28th of every year is World Rabies Day. That's also the anniversary of the death of Louis Pasteur. Well, that's a basic history of rabies. Uh, rabies. My, my hope is that in the future, we'll at least get to the point where the places in the world that have lots of free-roaming dogs also have those dogs vaccinated, because that's really where, like, so much feeding back into the greater environment and so much feeding into humans' cases of rabies, like, it's all interconnected with the dogs. Yeah, I think we mentioned it at the top of our episode on the history of veterinary medicine that one of the vets at my practice mm-hmm. participates in a program where she goes to countries where the the dog population is not well vaccinated yeah. and tries to just do as many vaccinations as they can in a short period of time. Yeah, they uh they had gone to Malawi, I think, and Malawi's target is like 70% of the dog population vaccinated which would do a lot to reduce the number of human deaths, but still would, like, there would still be a reservoir of circulating rabies among dog populations. There are a lot of sad parts to that, but one of the saddest parts is, like, a lot of the the people who die of rabies are, like, just a kid that wanted to pet a dog. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I have a listener mail. It's about animals. Um, It's not about rabies. Uh, It's from Kaylee, and it followed our episodes on Shackleton. Kaylee wrote in and said, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I'm a huge fan of yours. I've been listening to your podcast for years. I finally have something to write to you about. I just listened to the Endurance episodes. I can't wait for your behind-the-scenes episodes about it. I'm a children's librarian in Maine, and it's my job to try to read as many books in our children's collection in order to give recommendations. Well, a 2019 book called Fearless Felines, 30 True Tales of Courageous Cats, came across my desk a few months back, and as an avid cat lover, I opened up the book and immediately started reading. The first story I happened to see was about Mrs. Chippy, the explorer cat aboard the Endurance. According to this children's book and other research I found, Mrs. Chippy would climb in the rigging and walk along the narrow ship rails, even in bad weather. There was one episode where Mrs. Chippy jumped through the porthole and the crew had to rescue him after he spent 10 minutes in the water. When I read the part about the ship getting stuck and Shackleton making tough decisions and this meant no more Mrs. Chippy, I absolutely lost it and hid in a library basement, bawling my eyes out. As a highly sensitive person, sometimes I wonder if I can make it as a children's librarian from all the books I've read that have caused tears. Fast forward to more recent weeks and I was driving to work and listening to NPR and the story of the endurance wreckage being discovered came on. A descendant of Shackleton was talking about how their great-grandfather was a hero and brave and all I could do was yell, but he killed Mrs. Chippy at the radio. Listening to your episodes about Shackleton and the endurance gave me another perspective, though. Shackleton clearly cared about his crew from their health to the morale. Their situation was dire, and I'm glad Mrs. Chippy, along with the puppies and dogs, didn't starve to death. 
You probably found this in your research, but McNish, the carpenter on the Endurance, held a grudge against Shackleton after the whole Mrs. Shippy ordeal. McNish died penniless and was buried in an unmarked grave in 1930. The New Zealand Antarctic Society gave him a headstone in 1959, and then in 2004, a life-size bronze statue of Mrs. Chippy was built on his grave. Visiting his grave and the Mrs. Chippy Memorial is now on my bucket list, and if I make it, I'll be sure to send a picture, but in the meantime, here's a picture of my cat family I rescued last summer. Best regards from a librarian considering joining PETA, Kaylee. Thank you so much for this email. You are not the only person who commented in some way about being angry at Shackleton about Mrs. Chippy. Like, when we put the episode on our on our social media, there were various comments that said things like, he killed Mrs. Chippy, he's a monster. Um, <laughs> and it, uh, it reminded me a little bit, um, some years ago, we were having a conversation about potential future episode topics and suggestions on our Facebook page or somewhere. And there were a lot of people who were asking for L.M. Montgomery, who wrote Anne of Green Gables, who is definitely on my to-do list for an episode. And there was one particular person who had been apparently traumatized by a scene in one of the later books that involves a cat being killed and then was, like, commenting in reply to every single person who suggested that topic with, like, how horrible the cat death was. And I was like, this, you clearly this is something that really upset you as a child. But attitudes about animals were very different at the time. And, like, yes. what people thought of as the humane way to treat animals, not the same as we think of now when we think of pets as family members, a very different situation. And I understand how upsetting it can be. But, like Kaylee, I'm glad that the animals who were with Shackleton although we could have a whole argument about whether they should have been there in the first place. Glad that they did not face some of the dire situations of uh, of hunger and cold and all of that that the, that the men faced. Um, so thank you for this email and the picture and, and the stories about Mrs. Chippy. I didn't put a lot about Mrs. Chippy in the episode itself because I didn't want to make the end of Mrs. Chippy even sadder than it already was. Like, part of me didn't even want to put the name Mrs. Chippy in there because <laughs> somehow that made it harder. Um, so thank you for giving me the chance to share some Mrs. Chippy stories. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. And we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.